dunt, 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 Ladies and gentlemen, if podcasting has a name, it must be Rish Outfield. Wait, this makes no sense. What does that mean if podcasting has, has a name? Well, it's, it's sort of a play on Indiana Jones if adventure has a name. Indiana who? Uh-huh, right. You. Oh yeah, and who's going to come to save you, Junior? This is Rish Outfield. This is the Rish Out cast. Thank you for joining me. I've got a 40-minute drive and 39 minutes on my recorder. Now it's probably 37 minutes, but who cares? I thought this is a good time. Like I have a radio show and I have an exact amount of time that I have to broadcast. Um, I mean, it seems like this will be a fun experiment. In this episode, I'm going to bring you nothing. No, I'm, I'm deliberately going to waste your time, as most of these Rish Outcast episodes are. What you hadn't noticed yet, I've got a new novella out. It's called A Mark on the Sky. And it's available right now, and this is my episode where I talk about it. But there's something else I wanted to talk about that is super related. Back in June, I sat down with Abigail Hilton and we did an interview episode of The Rich Outcast. I'd never done that before. My idea had been we would do an episode of her podcast. She's got a podcast she does for her Patreon supporters. And then we would do an episode of the Rish Outcast, each one teasing the other, saying, you know, if you want the other half of this interview, you need to go to that website and check it out. And she, for some reason, generosity, I guess, decided, no, we'll just do a Rish Outcast episode and uh, I'll put it on my feed and you can put it on your feed and hey, they will be fed. It was a good idea. I mean, doesn't help her any, but it was promoting her book, Jager Thunder, which I was one of the narrators on. Anyway, after we talked about Jager Thunder for an hour and a hour and a half, um, she asked me a little bit about what was going on with me, what I was working on, and I wasn't really working on much. I had dedicated May and June to Jager Thunder, and I used it as a license to slack off in the writing department. So I would write one or two days a week during those two months and uh, got very, very little done. I mean, there were a couple of times that I wrote for a half hour, wrote for an hour, but most of the time it's just here and there, paragraph, and then, a, you know, half a page, that's it. But she was asking me what I had been working on and, and I told her, you know, I've got this novella that I've been working on and she said, let me guess, geriatric protagonist and uh it's funny but true yeah it was like a 78 year old 76 year old protagonist and uh 
I thought, wow, am I just that transparent or not transparent? Am I that predictable? And I guess the answer is yes. Big Anklevich used to uh, really stir up my ire because he would say that Stephen King only writes about writers. You know, the main protagonist in any Stephen King novel is a writer. And that is true of a portion of his books, yeah. And at one point he said that you always knew it was a Rish Outfield short story because the main character was some kind of geeky loser. And I don't feel that that is the case anymore. There, would, there tends to be somebody that is like me in everything that I write, but not everything that I write is about me anymore. I got the idea in my head that it would be interesting to write about old people. The first story I remember writing like that, I wrote it, I want to say it was the 96-97 school year when I was in this creative writing class. And it's a class that I talk about a lot because the teacher was super picky about what he wanted. He was trying to not get us to think outside the box, but get us to think inside his box, which would have sounded very different had the instructor been a woman. But he'd give us these writing assignments and I would try and write these stories to please him. And they never did. They didn't please me and, they, and, and he never really gave them a good grade. Then one time he said, look guys, you can just write whatever you want for this one, but it has to be idiosyncratic. I could talk for an hour about this teacher. I probably have about his fixation on idiosyncrasy. But I, I just wrote whatever I wanted, and this time I got, I got a, a good grade in his, on the assignment, and he wrote, that's more like it. And I was like, yeah, that is more like it, because I wasn't trying to please you, I was trying to please me. And in that class I wrote a story called Need, with a lowercase n. It was the first time I ever wrote about an old person. It was about an old retired doctor who had moved out to the country, not to the country, but he moved out to a cabin in the woods. Cabin in the woods, ooh, cabin in the woods, yeah. We're after his wife had died and after he retired. And one day there is a knock on the door of somebody that needs medical assistance. And it happens to coincide with the moment when he's feeling the most useless the most like life has let him down and it and the theme of that story that was one of the assignments is that we had to have a clear theme the theme of that story was it is more important to be needed than to be loved and i tried to write that story from it was in first person it was from an old man's point of view where he just, yeah, he feels like life has passed him by. And I really enjoyed that point of view. The other kids in the class did not enjoy it. It was a, a story that we workshopped and we all talked about in the round. And I got some really harsh criticism on it. Criticism that made me very angry rather than sad. But it wasn't the kind of anger that makes you go out and say, well, F you then. I'm going to publish this and I'm going to 
get a contract and I'm gonna get a movie deal and I'm gonna get a hand job and it'll all be to say F you to you guys. It, you know, it just taught me that lesson of, hey, don't share your stuff with other people. I don't know why I'm talking. Oh, first time I wrote about an old man and I just, I dug it. And I didn't do it again for a while uh, I had this idea about uh, some college students that summon uh, like a demon, like an elder god kind of thing out in the forest. And, they, you know, they're just screwing around reading from you know, the mad Arab Abdul Al-Hazared's book. And it opens up a portal, it opens up some kind of hole, and, and this thing comes out. And so they flee back to the university and they go to their... What was he going to be? He was going to be like religious studies professor or something like that. You know, one of those teachers, comparative religion professor. And they ask him, you know, if he'll help them stop this creature. And when I came upon that idea, suddenly the old near to retirement or maybe just retired religious studies professor became the most interesting character in, in my mind. And I was just like, wow, I... I like this. And so I sort of abandoned that story and made a new story that was similar, but it was all about this old man. And that story was called... Story was called Unreleased, Rish. My God, this is low sound quality. Guess it fits the content of the show. And so, that yeah, that story ended up being just about him. And I... May, I had my cake and ate it too by having him be one of the college students years and years before that had summoned this thing. So I had flashbacks and then a modern day angle as well. But after that, it's like, oh my gosh, old people are interesting. And they are. And so it's something that comes up again and again. Uh, a story called Last Call about an old man in a bar who's telling, he tells a tale about whatever the opposite of a curse is, a blessing, a gypsy blessing that was placed on him in World War II. I wrote a story called Old Man River, which was about a guy who works at a convenience store and an old man comes in right before closing and he tells him a story about encountering a ghost on that road many years before. Yeah, and there are more than that, definitely. I just, I like, as Abigail called it, the geriatric protagonist. So yeah, th this episode can be a Rish Outfield and the geriatric protagonist. Oh, you know, just a year or two ago, I wrote Newfound Fame about an old, about a, he's getting up there, man, who in the 1980s played a monster in a low-budget horror film that has gone on to have cult status. Geriatric protagonists are just... It's something that appeals to me, that speaks to me. And also the onus of how much of this character is based on me is gone. You can have an old character say anything, and I won't be accused of that is you. That is me talking, which, you know, has come up a couple of times when I have a character say something. They'll be like, oh, was this based on me? 
I've always enjoyed writing about kids, you know, the Ben Park stories, Lost and Found, or old people. And I tend not to write in the middle all that much. You know, teenagers is pretty much where it, it ends. And I wonder if it's because you don't have to deal with romance, romantic subplots and that kind of stuff in a story about an old person or in a story about a kid. I read an interview with a writer. It's got to be a couple years now, but it stuck with me. He was a super religious guy and he wrote YA books very successfully. And he said, the reason I write YA is because sex is a dirty, dirty thing. And if I'm writing YA, then I don't even have to skirt the issue of sex. And it horrified me that he said that, but come on, you and I have both known tons of people who feel that way, who think that way. And uh, maybe YA is their genre. Although, why not write children's books? Anyhow, let me talk about A Mark on the Sky for a moment. Wow, I can't believe this. I'm almost there. I must have been really going fast, guys. Focusing on old people. My time running out. A Mark on the Sky was inspired by something that happened to me. Now it's probably been five years ago. Uh, where was I? I was at Toys R Us, I believe, and there was a kid, a child, and he had made this ugly origami shape with folded paper and his own saliva, and he held it out to me and he said, you can have this if you want, and I guess it's charming, it's neat that a stranger would say this to me, but I was kind of creeped out by it. The way that he said it, and then for just a split second, I didn't want to touch the gift, the offering, the paper. And I told Big about this, and he says, oh yeah, that's, that's interesting. You'll have to write a story about that. And then we went to the New Media Expo, and during the drive home, I started the recorder and we talked about, brainstormed a story with that as its backbone. You know, a child hands you an origami piece and says you can have this if you want it. And we came up with this idea that it's not really a child, it's something pretending to be a child, masquerading as a child. And we were talking about, you know, who the protagonist should be, who the person that gets the offering would be, and what exactly that item is, the uh, origami trinket. And I got this idea of what if instead of it being me or a teenager or something, it's an old man, like a guy who's mopping the floors or something. And I, I said, you know, there's a dearth of fantasy stories with a geriatric protagonist. I didn't use those words. That's Abby's words. But you're not going to get a lot of that in Hollywood and movies and all that stuff because it's not sexy. People don't like to be reminded of that. Plus, in Hollywood, it's everybody, it's all people are so, I don't want to say look-centric. It's, it's more than that. It's image-centric. 
they're so fixated on youth and beauty and if not those two things then wealth success prestige tons of people i knew in la didn't own a car they leased a car and the reason that they did is so that they could have a much nicer car a newer car and the people around them would think that they were doing better than they were in some ways i wonder why i felt like that's where i needed to be because i'm so not that person i'm so not like most of the people i saw in la and i'm also not confident and to make it in LA you kind of have to have that confidence yet yeah, i still i still feel the pull of that from time to time i think about going back i wonder anyhow we did this episode about it and we got home and big is like well okay we're home you know i'm going to drop you off but the story wasn't done we hadn't gone as far as we wanted to go with it or as far as i wanted to go with it the time ran out and so it was just like oh okay well i guess we'll just publish this as is and it's an episode of that gets my goat where we brainstormed for an hour or more and maybe i'll put a link to it in the show notes um, in case you're interested because it is interesting how ideas develop and morph and change you know, that he says this little thing and i go oh okay and then the story goes off in a new direction. So we never did another brainstorming session on the Dune Steef. I wanted to do it on that gets my go. I wanted to do it a lot. I was like, oh, like every 6 to 8 months we'll do another one of these and it'll just be a blast. And part of it was because that story never went anywhere. We never sat down and wrote it. We didn't get to a finish and we didn't get a lot of feedback. on it positive or negative our show just didn't ever explode the way that we wanted it to i mean now is not the time to wonder where we went wrong on the dune steef and on that gets my goat because right now there's nothing there's nothing going on i haven't seen big anklevich in in weeks and we haven't gotten together to podcast and maybe we won't And so, you know, that stuff is relegated to the past. But cut to 2017, I thought it would be enjoyable to listen to that. And I'm trying to remember where I was going because I listened to it in the car. Or maybe I just put it on my phone and listened to it while I was driving. Uh but I listened to it and I got to the end of the episode and I was disappointed because we were formulating the story of where it was going to go and what was going to happen then the time just ran out and we said to be continued or maybe we didn't even say that oh thanks for listening creative commons and i thought dang what a lost opportunity i thought about the story myself and i was like well where should it go what should happen which parts of our conversation spoke to me that really grabbed me and which parts didn't and one of the parts that i thought was interesting from early early on was that when this boy handed me the paper thing i had this feeling of revulsion and didn't want to touch it that's what happened in real life and i think 
It was something we talked about a little bit in our discussion, but it wasn't a main concern of the story. But it's something that resonated with me, especially the idea that whatever form this paper had been folded into, it was ugly and it was alien. It was what this boy actually looked like under his disguise. And that became a big part of the story when I went ahead and wrote it. Uh, It's called A Mark on the Sky. And look, I'll be honest, I wrestled a little bit with it before I even started writing it because I thought, well, how much of this story is Big Anklevich's? Because we brainstormed it together. And so maybe I should credit it, uh, A Mark on the Sky, a story by Rish Outfield, based on an idea by Rish Outfield and Beatty Anklevich. It's hard to say. Yeah, I picked a geriatric protagonist. For a second, I couldn't remember the words, even though that's the name of this episode. The main character in Mark on the Sky is Fisher Palmer. He's an old man, well past his prime. He's got arthritis. He's got stomach problems. But he doesn't have enough money to retire, so he works as a janitor at a pharmacy in this little town in Montana and part of what inspired me about this story is (laughs) there's this movie called Troll 2 that a lot of people call the worst movie ever made it's it's bad but it's not nearly as bad as like I saw Kevin Smith's latest film Yoga Hosers the other day I'd say that Troll 2 is way more entertaining, way better than Yoga Hosers. But it it became infamous for how bad it was. And there was a documentary called Best Worst Movie. And it was a retrospective on Troll 2. And in the movie itself, there's a little boy and I believe his grandfather has died. But the grandfather's ghost comes to warn the boy about what's coming. And... In Best Worst Movie, they interview this old man who played the grandpa, and he he sort of brings the documentary, which is fun and a good time, to a screeching halt. He says something that stayed with me, and I may have difficulty even repeating it because it so bothered me. He says, I, you know, I'm an old man. I never had any children. Uh, anything to leave behind. Basically, I wasted my life. And when he said that, he says it with such genuine, heartfelt despair that it just, it made me stop and go, oh my God. And then in the credits at the end of the movie, it says that he died before the documentary was released. And I don't know, that really bothered me. The thought that an old person would say, I wasted my life. And he's reached the end when there's no more you can do. Anyway, that really upset me. And so when I was kind of coming up with Fisher Palmer, I was inspired by that, by the old man in Best Worst Movie. And then I was also inspired by my father, who died 
last year, I imagine around the time that this episode is dropping. And I tried to think about how I feel now at middle age with the number of times I've fallen short, the number of times I've screwed up, the number of times I have failed or failed to even try. And I thought, let's add 30 years to that. And so that's kind of the character of Fisher Palmer. But in this story, he gets a chance to make a difference here at the end of his life. And he gets a little bit of his youth back, just just for a little while. And to me, that was motivation to write it. That was enough for me to say, oh yeah, I want to write this piece through to the end. And I did. And like I said, when I was writing every single day, it was easy to get to the end of things because those words just add up. Even if I would only write 300 words or 200 words or 187 words or 400 words or something like that, you do that for seven days in a row and there you go. Look what, how much you have. Your results may vary. The old man from the documentary aside, this is a hopeful story. I am, if I did my job, it's an entertaining story. It's a funny story. Uh, there's some action in it. I mean, it, it's science fiction. It's, it's fantasy. It's an old man getting a new lease on life, getting a chance to make a difference. And again, I hope that that aspect of the story makes it, if not unique, then on a short list. Like I said, every fantasy or science fiction story is about a young person or somebody in the prime of their life, somebody who's attractive, somebody who is vibrant. And if they aren't, when they make a film adaptation of it, they replace that middle-aged person, that ugly person, with somebody very attractive. They want people to tune in. I, I, I understand. I almost got off on a tangent about how um, I get frustrated when somebody in a bit part is just, you know, super, super attractive, but I'm not going to get off on that tangent. <laughs> I'm just, I write these stories to entertain myself. And if they entertain you, then hey, I did a pretty good job. It's hard to say because I'm close to these things. I'm close to these subjects. Something that they will tell you, that any writer who is successful will tell you as advice for a, an aspiring writer is don't try and chase the market. Don't try and write what is currently popular right now. Write what is interesting to you. Write a book you would want to read when you went into a bookstore. And yeah, that's what I have done with this. The age of the main character notwithstanding. Hey, the sun is setting in my rearview mirror, which should mean something poetic since we're talking about the elderly. The theme of Mark on the Sky is 
you know, an old man who feels useless, finding a use, again, finding that he's important. Uh, you know, if you've listened to that, that gets my goat episode, then you know what happens in that story. It's, I stuck really close to that idea, that outline, that brainstorming session that we did. And, you know, I never know if something is good or it's, you know, it's strong or it's weak. Just today I was reading aloud uh, a bit from a novella that I wrote, which I was so proud of. And there were two or three moments where I was just like, this is not good. You've heard me say that stuff before. And it sucks. I don't like doubting myself. I don't like asking myself, am I less talented than I thought I was? But I like Mark on the Sky. I really like the old man protagonist. And I, I don't know why. I mean, I guess that's what this episode has been about, is why. Of course, I did an audio reading of Mark on the Sky. It's, you know, my forte. And I figured I'd play a little clip of it right here. I've explained this before, but when you are releasing an audiobook through Audible, you are required to have a sample that anybody can listen to. If you go to any of the audiobooks that I have produced, there is a five-minute sample. I think once I did like a three-minute sample, but it's supposed to be around five minutes, and I made the mistake of doing like a six-minute one or seven-minute one one time, and they're like, nope, you can't do that. It has to be five minutes or less. So from that point on, I've always, it's always been 451. Usually what I'll do is I'll take a chunk of the book that's, you know, a six, seven minute chunk. And then I'll just start whittling it down, removing a line or two here or there until it reaches just under five minutes. But as far as what section to use, you're supposed to pick something that's in indicative. Is that the word I'm looking for? Exemplary. You're supposed to pick something that's a good example of what the book is. But at the same time, you want to do something like somebody appears on The Tonight Show and they have brought a clip from their movie. And the clip, yes, is indicative of what to expect when you go see the movie, but it's also supposed to be something that grabs you, that intrigues you, that makes you say, oh, hey, that looks like a pretty good flick. I don't know. There's no, uh, there's no classes of how to choose your sample, but it's something that I try to do with everyone that I produce where, you know, I, I, I grab something that's interesting or exciting or scary, if that's what the book is. When I would do those Doomerist of Terra books, I often would comb through the books, which were space opera adventure stories, but kind of highbrow space opera adventure stories. They're, they're, they, I hate to say highbrow because it's about a dude who, you know, knows how to kill. But I would always try and pick the combat scenes, the scenes where Earl Doomrust is fighting, 
you know, a monster or, uh, you know, he's been put in some gladiatorial arena. Not because those are what the books are all about, but because those are flashy, because those are going to put butts in seats. Those are the trailer moments. You know what I mean? The trailer usually shows the best parts of the movie. I had a friend who worked at a trailer house in Los Angeles and he would comb through footage. Sometimes they'd send him a list of, you know, hey, have something from this part and this part in there because they knew that that was the strongest material. But you pick the, the jokes that are the funniest in a comedy. You pick the scenes that are the scariest in a horror movie, etc. But with Audible, you can only do a section. And I think, I remember when I first started doing them, you weren't supposed to do an edit. You were supposed to do like a five-minute segment of the audiobook. But nuts to that, guys. If you pick a five-minute segment of any book, it's going to have references to scenes that nobody knows about. That don't, It's going to have lines that don't make any sense if you haven't read up to that point. Although, probably a good suggestion if you don't want to go through a book and try and find the best five minutes would be just to start at the very beginning and do the first five minutes of the book. I've seen that a lot of times on Audible. Anyhow... What I chose on mine, uh, it comes fairly close to the end of the book. Fisher Palmer, the old man, the geriatric protagonist, occasionally eats his dinner at a diner that's um, in the center of town. And Florence Prince is a middle-aged waitress that he finds attractive, and the two of them get along. And I guess if it were someone else writing this book, she would be the love interest. If they were making a movie of A Mark on the Sky, somebody would be brought in and they would pump up this relationship. Because I can't do it myself. But anyway, the segment that you're about to hear, Fisher knows what is coming. And... Uh, I guess you will too after listening to this this clip. I hadn't thought of that. But again, it's I chose it because it's setting up something that's about to happen. And I, I feel like I don't really know why I chose it. I, I could easily have chosen the scene with the little kid saying, you can have this if you want it. Because that happens at the very beginning. But instead I chose this conversation because I feel it's stronger and I feel like it sells the book better than a kid handing you a folded piece of paper that you don't know what it is. I, I could be wrong, actually. Uh, go ahead and listen. As he drove down Main Street, he passed by the diner and decided to stop for some lunch. It didn't hurt that he'd seen Florence Prince's old white Volvo parked on the side. The lunch crowd had mostly come and gone, and Florence was wiping off tables when Fisher walked in. He saw her walking over to his usual place at the bar, clearing it so he could sit down. "'How's business today?' he asked as she came by to offer him coffee. "'Must say, you look even better than the last time I saw you.' Fisher shrugged. 
Florence could be so friendly, which came with the waitress job, he knew. But he couldn't help but think of her as a friend, and potentially something more. Today I feel pretty good. All right, she said, as if she didn't believe him and wasn't sure if she should call him on it. What does all right mean? Fisher asked. I guess it means that something is bothering you. Either that or I've got something on my nose. Your nose? He liked her nose. You're not making eye contact. He forced himself to do so. She didn't wear glasses, and today neither was he. Making eye contact seemed an intimate thing to do somehow. I've just been a little worried about something. She nodded, didn't prod. He wondered if she was ignoring all the other customers in favor of him. That made him feel a little bit important. He couldn't figure out how to begin. Some strange things have been happening, he said at last. And I think the strangest is yet to come. Florence smiled, as though he had been making a joke. Strange how? Like Rod Serling on television, strange. Maybe that wasn't the best comparison, either. He needed to find a parallel that wasn't immediately entertaining, that was serious, and at least a little scary. He became aware that Florence was watching him, maybe a little too intensely. Is something going on, Fisher? Well, that was the perfect lead-in to his warning. It wasn't going to get any easier. Where were you when Kennedy got shot? Me? She laughed. Not usually the reaction when someone asked that question. I was just a baby. People told me about it after. So in answer to your question, probably in a playpen or crib in Missoula. How about 9-11? I was here, in town, at home, watching on the TV like everybody else. But what if you knew the attack was coming? That it was tomorrow? What would you do? She pursed her lips. Anton and I talked about this when it happened. If we were on the airplane or in one of the buildings. Anton Prince had been her husband. He had died between five and ten years earlier. Fisher hadn't known him. And? There's not that much a single person can do, really. They downed the one plane, but... What if you knew people in the towers? Friends or, or relatives? What would you say to them? Florence shook her head. These were awfully strange questions, she seemed to be thinking. I'd tell them to get out. That I'd heard an attack was coming and they needed to be out of those buildings on the 11th. And would they believe you? How many of them would actually stay at home or, I don't know, call in sick on that morning? Fisher, I guess I understand your question, and there's really only one true answer. And that is? Not nearly enough. He thought that was all she would say about it. Look, maybe I'd call the police, call in a bomb threat, say I was going to destroy the buildings, that 
they were on a timer or something and they couldn't be stopped. I'd say death to America and hang up. Hopefully I'd be smart enough to do it from a payphone or from work. So they didn't trace it to you? Right. She sighed. But even then, who cares if it saved a bunch of lives? If they found me and put me in their secret torture jail in Florida, but because of me they'd evacuated those buildings, it would be worth the consequences, you know? He found himself smiling. That's pretty remarkable, Florence. I have to admit, I'm tempted to kiss you right now. A bit of color came into her cheeks, but she didn't back away. What's this about, Fisher? You got a time machine you haven't told me about? He swallowed. Tomorrow, there's going to be an attack. Something not unlike 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. I want to warn people about it, but... Shit. The look she was giving him now was not what he'd been hoping for. He was back in the Twilight Zone. How did you find out about this thing? This attack? Is it an attack? Yeah. You could call it that. He was tempted to look out the window and see if he could see that mark on the sky. He gave it to her straight. Tomorrow, this thing is going to happen. Is there some place you can go? It's happening here? Not in Washington or New York, but, but in Montana? Like I said, strange. Well, then you need to tell somebody, Fisher. Make them listen to whatever you... I am telling somebody. I'm telling you, Florence. Why me? Two reasons. I thought you might actually believe me, and... Well, I'm fairly fond of you. So that's, you know, that's a sample there. Okay, so that was almost seven minutes. I gave you guys a longer version with, you know, the JFK stuff and all that. When, uh, for the audible version, uh, it's just, it's cut down almost two minutes shorter. Uh, it's, it just, what you listened to was cut down from an eight and a half minute segment. Maybe it was 10 minutes. I don't know. I just went through and whittled it down a little bit. And then after I saved this bit that you just heard, I whittled it down a little bit more for the audible one. And like I said, I don't know that I made the right decision, but it's what my gut told me to do as far as it, it's kind of like when you're sending a query letter to somebody is I, I have written this book. And this is my description of the book. And you can't cover everything. So what do you choose to focus on? And this is what I chose to focus on, is his conversation with Florence, establishing that he's an old man, establishing that an attack is coming. But he doesn't delineate exactly what's going on to her. So hopefully that creates a bit of mystery if I did my job, you're like, gosh, what, what, what happens after this part where he says, I'm fond of you? Because the scene doesn't end there. I don't know. Guys, again, 
a lot of this is just you make it up as you go along. You try and figure out how to tell stories in the best way that you can. And you learn. You get better, hopefully. And the only way that you can learn is by doing and by making mistakes and from not making those mistakes again. <laughs> I did, I've done a whole episode here shilling a book. And it's not the first time that I've done it. Hopefully it won't be the last time that I've done it. I need to do it more. I mean, frankly, every, I don't know, sixth or tenth episode should be one of these. Where it's like, okay, I've put out a new novella. Please check it out. And maybe it's not for everybody. Maybe somebody hears that it's one of these episodes again. And they're like, oh, yuck. But... At the same time, I hope there are people out there that hear it and go, oh, hey, Rish put something else out again. Good for him, because I know he struggles with this. So anyway, thank you. You can buy this book. You can buy the audiobook narrated by me, obviously. And you can uh, support me on Patreon. You can continue to listen to the Rish Outcast. You can do any of these things. If you want to. This podcast, amazingly enough, comes attached to a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivatives 3.0 license. It's free to listen to, copy, share, and delete, especially that last one. But you cannot sell it or make claims on it yourself. However, there is a Patreon fund set up for this show, wherein you can donate a dollar an episode and up to keep it going. Your Patreon pledge could very well save Rish Outfield. And who's going to come to save you, Junior? The customer leaned my way, conspiratorially. Conspiratorially, conspiratorially, the customer leaned my way, conspirat, conspiratorially, the customer leaned my way, conspiratorially, conspiratorially. <laughs> the old man in that documentary aside, hopefully this is a, don't say hopefully, this is a hopeful story, kind of a hack would say something like that. Back when I used to just release these things for passion, it was okay if nobody bought it. It was okay if nobody listened to it. But now that there is a dollar sign attached to it, sometimes I'm reminded how small that dollar sign is, and that's bothersome. I mean, how can having very little money be worse than having no money? That's a rhetorical question. But if you have the answer, feel free to throw it in the comments. And again, feel free to buy a mark on the sky if that appeals to you. I'm going to keep writing. And as you know, the writing is not the hard part for me. It's the sharing. It's the putting forth. It's the potential criticism, potential rejection that is hard for me. So... Here we go, another thing that people can buy if they choose, and so that's good. Anyway, I've been Rish Outfield.
I'm not quite yet a geriatric protagonist, but I'm on my way. Good night.